Well, good morning. I don't know if you uh, if you noticed, but when he asked who would come next year, Barb and I didn't raise our hands. <laughs> and Barb leaned over and she said, "If we went, we'd probably be in the hospital." <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Uh, thank you guys for for uh, devoting yourselves to that ministry. It is so, so good and so important for us as a church family. By the way, there is a handout on the back table, and I'm going to reference uh, the scripture side of it first because I'm going to take us through three passages at the start. We're in the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 18, and we're going to do the last narrative in that chapter, verses 35 through 43. But first, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. You have blessed us way beyond what we could ever ask or think. You called us, you saved us. Your spirit is sanctifying us. You gave us your word, and you gave us Jesus and his body, the church. And so we're here. We're here together as a, a church family, as a body of believers and we want to hear from your word. So help us. Use your spirit to heighten our awareness and our understanding of your word this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. All right, Luke eighteen thirty-five to 43. I'm going to read through. There are three different gospels that talk about this passage. First, I'm going to read, and I'm working out of the NASB this morning. Uh, Luke 18 has one of them, Mark 10 has another, and Matthew 20 has another. Now, what's, what's interesting about this, uh, I didn't do this until later on in my prep, but when I laid these out against each other, it gave me a whole picture of what was going on. And so it's, it's going to be useful because I'm going to reference some of the Mark and Matthew items and then you won't have to go back and reference them because you will have heard them. So here we go. Luke 18.35 As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped 
and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Mark says it this way. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <clears throat> Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Matthew. Matthew 20, 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So, three different passages, three different Gospels, three different views that the Lord is working through three different men to document what happened on the way to Jericho. So, the way I think I'm going to handle this with the time remaining this morning, bring it up for me to get me started. Always have a little bit of tr trouble with this guy. Oh, I keep forgetting. I always forget. I'm always looking up there. Uh, where they used to have it, and it's behind me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come at this quickly in some places here. First, let's set the stage, talking just a little bit about geography, and then we'll we'll start diving into the passage, and we'll 
we'll talk a little bit about this blind guy named Bartimaeus. And then there's another aspect to the story, and that's the people in the crowd. And then finally, the key is Jesus. Jesus as Messiah. So if you look on your, your handout, or if I was to bring up the, the slide, you're going to have a, a little picture of Jericho and Israel. Uh, and I was a little bit surprised when I did this, because I didn't, in my head, all these years, have Jericho down there that close to Jerusalem. The line, the red line that's coming down through here is uh, starting up here in the Galilee region up by Capernaum and it's coming down through all the stories that we've had and the narratives over the last month or two. And Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And now here he is coming into Jericho. Jericho, as it turns out, is really only about six hours walk uphill to Jerusalem. So he's pretty close now. And this account is happening just before the week of Passover. And it's just before one of the passages coming up, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. By the way, this is the last miracle with people that Jesus does. This is the very last one. You're not going to have any more in the week of Jerusalem and the Passover. Just a little clarification, if you paid attention, you would have, you would have kind of gone, wait a minute, is he coming or is he going to Jericho? The passages kind of differed. And uh, one of the explanations was there's really two Jerichos. There's the old Jericho, Joshua, where the walls fell down, and then there's the new one, and they're close to each other. And in fact, what could be happening, depending on the author, they may be saying he's leaving one and he's entering the other. And then the very next passage after this one, which Brian will get into next week, is with Zacchaeus, and he will actually be in Jericho in that passage. Now, as we come into the passage here, uh, we immediately hear about this blind beggar. And it's important that, that we understand that blind people in Israel were considered sinners who were being punished by God. Now, if you remember back at some passages you're probably familiar with, John 9-2, they said to Jesus, who sinned? They were talking about a blind man Jesus was coming to. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Blind people were very low on the scale of society, probably just a little bit above a leper or a tax collector. And being blind made you very dependent on others. Being by the roadside is a good place for the people who are beggars because 
in this case, being by the roadside here, everybody's on their way up to Jerusalem to Passover. And everybody will come down through this path going around Samaria, coming through Jericho in order to get up to Jerusalem. So the crowds begin to build as the time goes on. And I think, as I was thinking about it, Passover is a big deal. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And a lot of those people are passing by this beggar. Mark tells us his name was Bartimaeus. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. A lot of times you don't get the name of a person. And in this case, Mark gives us his name. Now, probably, maybe he just wanted to enable his audience to check it out. If you don't think this story is true, well, it happened to a man named Bartimaeus. Go find him and ask him. But we need to think about the key issue with the passage. Luke's concern is not him as much as he wants to draw our attention to what this person gives testimony to. It's very clear that what this blind man believes and says about who Jesus is is very important, and it's the key part of the passage. It's why Luke put the story here. As Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to the Passover, it's why Jesus stops here and engages a conversation with this blind man. It's because of who the blind man says Jesus is. Ligon Duncan said the following about this. He said, this story is also important because it draws attention to faith as the means by which we receive the blessings of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and person. And so Luke wants to draw our attention to that. Not to the person of the blind man, but to the testimony that the blind man gives. We've seen it before and we're getting a, a reminder that in this passage, Jesus the Messiah calls the unlikely, the overlooked, to put their faith in him because they see who he is, what he can do and what he has done. And in his might and power, he heals and restores them. And in this passage, makes it very clear Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. Story simple. Beggar sitting by a roadside in Jericho. Nothing extraordinary about that. You can relate to it. In today's culture, if you go down... 75, and you turn on the 120 exit, what are you going to see? You're going to see people begging for money and food. Also, in this case, the Jews felt that it was a pious thing as a godly Jew to give alms to the poor. And if they're filing through Jericho going up for the Passover to Jerusalem, this is a good place to be. So he's actually positioned at a strategic point. Now the people in the crowd, 
let's look at what happens when we think about the people in the crowd. When Bartimaeus hears a large crowd going by, he says to the people around him, what's going on? What's the big crowd about? Who is this that's passing by? And they say, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. Because, pay attention, he doesn't cry out, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a big contrast. The crowd is thinking about Jesus as a man from Nazareth. The beggar knows Jesus is a Messiah. That's significant. That contrast is really amazing. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Now, that's a messianic title. So it's important. It's a messianic title, and we get confirmation of that in the Old Testament, but we also get confirmation of it in Matthew. Matthew 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. There's other passages in the Gospels where this happens, but the one that's most convincing is in Matthew uh, 141, uh, 141, where the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asks them a question. What do you think about the Christ? So that's really, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. They should have known. The main point at this, at this part of the, the passage, Jesus hears this blind beggar. And Jesus never ignores the cry of a true heart of repentance. And desperate sinners who know they're worthy of nothing will always gain a hearing with him. Let me repeat that because that's critical. Jesus never ignores the cry of a true heart of repentance. And desperate sinners who know they're worthy of nothing will always gain a hearing with him. The minute this blind beggar says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, the people up front begin to rebuke him. Don't bother Jesus. He's busy. Just like we saw earlier, Two weeks ago, Brian taught on passage about children when they were bringing the children to Jesus. The disciples rebuked them and said, go away, he's busy, but this man, this beggar does not give up. When he's rebuked by the people that were in front of Jesus, he just ratchets it up a few decibels and he continues to cry, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And at that point, after the second time, we're told Jesus stops. Now the language here, this word for cry out, is almost like shouting. It is a very loud and proclaimed expression. But Jesus stops and now listen to what he does. It's even more forceful than Luke when they were rebuking the parents who were bringing the children. And Jesus said, no, 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 allow them to come to me. But what, is, what happens in this passage? He commands that the blind man be brought to him. That's another strong word. He commands it. Why? Perhaps this blind man saw something about Jesus. He knew something. He believed something about Jesus that everybody in that crowd needed to understand. And it's actually a stark contrast also to the passage Matt taught on last week. The passage Matt taught on last week was while he was saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and he was explaining to the disciples all that was going to happen. They didn't understand. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. They could see, but they couldn't understand. This blind beggar can't see but he understands. What a contrast. What a contrast. This blind man can see before he can see. He can see who Jesus is, even though the disciples couldn't see. It's one of those ironies. And Luke loves to use contrast. So now, let's listen. What does, what does Jesus now do? Jesus hears him, he stops, commands them to bring to Jesus, and he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? There's another contrast baked in here. This phrase, what do you want me to do for you? It's the second time in the last part here of Luke where that very same phrase was used. The first time was with two disciples who came up to Jesus and said, will you give us what we ask you? And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want to sit on your right and your left. They're looking for exaltation. This guy is looking for mercy. Another contrast. He wanted to regain his sight. Jesus acknowledges and he says, your faith has made you well. So what does that mean? Brian encountered this in an earlier passage in Luke. And one of the things that he pointed out, and I'm going to point it out as well, is that the real word that's used here is your faith has saved you. That's the real translation. That's the real literal translation. In fact, some of the 
the trans, some of the Bibles will use that language instead of has made you well. There are two other words that could be used in the Greek for healing or making you well. And they're always used for really the physical healing scenario. So the point here is perhaps your faith has made you well is not just a physical, but it's also a spiritual thing. Let's see if that holds true. One thing that it's important about this phrase and this issue about faith that we need to clear up in our mind is that faith is only the instrument. Faith is not the power to make it happen. In other words, if the value of one's faith does not come from the one, it doesn't come from the one who expresses it, but it comes from the object in which it rests. Ultimately, healing is not contingent upon the quality of one's faith, but upon the healer, and that's Jesus. Here's a quote from B.B. Warfield. I'm going to put it up here. And I put, I put uh, some of it underneath the main point on your handout. So listen closely to this quote. The saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not faith that saves, but the object of faith, Jesus Christ, is what saves you. Faith in any other person or thing, or in this or that philosophy or human conceit, or in any other gospel than that of Jesus Christ and him crucified, brings not salvation, but a curse. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ saves through faith. Now pay attention to this, because I think it's important. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. Luke draws attention to the fact that faith is the means whereby we receive the benefits of Jesus' person, life, and death, and resurrection. When the man is brought to Jesus, Jesus asked them the question, what do you want me to do for you? You're calling me out. What exactly do you want from me? And the man doesn't say, I want money, I want food. He said, Lord, I'd like to see again. Now, in a way, you could consider the man is really honoring Jesus because he's pretty much saying, only you can do something like this. If the guy was to come to me during the service and say the same thing, I want to regain my sight, I might say, okay, let's go out and let's pray about it, but I don't have the power to do it. 
this man, this blind beggar, knowing he's the Messiah, knowing that that's what was supposed to happen when the Messiah comes, he knows Jesus can do it. And so Jesus says, you got it. You can see. Your faith has made you well. That's what this passage is about. Now, that's what it's about. Let me tell you what it's not about. The faith healers love this passage because they can say, ah, what healed this man is having faith. His faith is the source of his healing. And that's really pretty convenient for them because if somebody doesn't get healed, then whose fault is it? Yours. Because you don't have enough faith. It's not the faith healers. It's your fault. You don't have enough faith. That is not what's going on in this passage. And when they use this passage to do that, it's horrible. It's horrible to people. It's horrible to scripture. It's horrible to God. There are other passages that they use that likewise are incorrectly administered. Jesus is drawing attention to this man's faith as the means, the instrument, the conduit in which he has received God's blessing. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians? Passage we're all familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And not that of yourself. It's a gift of God. Philippians says, to you it has been granted to believe. So even faith itself is a gift. It's not that faith is the source of this man's healing, but it's the instrument. So, what happens next? How does Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus how does he respond? It says, he followed him. He followed him and was glorifying God. And the people also gave praise. Well, that's discipleship talk. He's a believer now, and he's following Jesus. He's a believer who left what he had, and he's going to go follow Jesus. Our second, I guess you could say, main point here is Jesus has the power to heal disease, but far more importantly, he has the power to save sinners and turn them into obedient followers who live lives of true worship. That's what's going on in this passage. So there you have it. It's a nice passage. It's really short, concise, one point, 
two subpoints, if you will. Uh, and to me, it's really kind of a, there's more to it when you start diving and in, into it and paying attention. There's more to it than what you first think. So let's think about now the big so what. Nice story, right? What's well, more than just a nice story? It's a story that really happened. It's a story that really demonstrates Jesus is the Son of God. So, if you're not a believer in Jesus, how should I think about this? Everyone who Jesus willed to be healed was healed. Sometimes he healed those who expressed their faith in him, and he made a point of emphasizing the condition of their heart. Other times, in his great mercy, he healed those with no faith, and later he drew them to him and saved them. Bartimaeus, both things happened here at the same time. If you don't believe Jesus as the Son of God, the first thing you should do is come to the point where you do believe and confess that Jesus is God. That's what Bartimaeus did. Jesus, son of David, he confessed loudly Jesus was the God's anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. Second, be humble. Ask for mercy. That's what Bartimaeus did. He knew he didn't deserve mercy. He had no thought of entitlement. We should be the same way, calling out, Lord, have mercy on me. Third, don't let the crowd stop you. People are going to try and get in the way and prevent you. Bartimaeus knew he had a need that only Jesus could supply. He was not going to let the crowd stop him from getting his deliverance. So when the crowd told him to shut up, what did he do? He shouted even louder. And Jesus heard him and came to him. Four, the Mark passage says he immediately threw away his cloak, jumped to his feet, and ran to Jesus. Now, perhaps he realized that where Jesus is taking him, his cloak could not go. And he's leaving the past behind. Fifth, then he follows Jesus. Here's another little interesting point. If you read the Mark passage, Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Did he do that? No. He didn't go, he went and followed Jesus. That's the sign of a disciple. Bartimaeus was a little bit like one of the 10 lepers in one of the stories we had earlier. 10 of them got healed, only one came back. Bartimaeus didn't just want the healing, he also wanted the healer. So, we need, if we don't already, to believe as Jesus, as the Son of God. 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You may have a picture of God's grace if you look around because people like us who are believers are just a bunch of ragtag group of sinners. And Jesus in this story is driving home the point that his disciples are going to be like children, blind beggars, lepers, and next week a tax collector. So let me ask a question. Do you see what the blind man saw before he could see? Do you see Jesus as God's son? If not, that's our prayer for you today. So what about us as believers? Something for us to consider. Jesus is always in these Gospels reaching out to the unlikely to be his disciples. Earlier it was children, not highly esteemed in the day. Now here's a blind guy. Next week is going to be a tax collector. In the past there were lepers. These are people that are just not the most likely that you would think would be the ones that Jesus would be calling. And now here's this blind guy, and he becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It says, immediately he recovered his sight, and then he followed him. And then he glorified God. Luke has used that language before, and it's fairly common to, to Luke. It's not as common sometimes in the other, the other Gospels. The people in front of Jesus thought he was so unimportant, so unlikely, they rebuked him. But Jesus commanded him to come to him, to be brought to him. And if we don't realize it, if Jesus is after you, he will command for you to be brought to him. Jesus always gets his man or his woman. He will track you down. He will command for you to be brought to him. Isn't that great? Even if you're running from him, He'll stop, and he'll command for you to be brought to him. I can relate to that, if you have ever heard my testimony. Because when Jesus was coming after me, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Do you know why? I thought he would send me to Africa. I am not kidding. I had a significant fear that that would happen. And it's so ironic that some 12 years ago, and again, 
in 10 days, guess where I'm going? I'm going to Africa. I'm going to Liberia. And I'm joyfully going there. There's absolutely no fear about it at all. So that's really exciting. That's good to know. And this story kind of reinforced that for me. There's other things to say here, but I don't have the, the time to do it. I would ask you to go visit 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following. And I think when I close after communion, I'll reference that passage. And it has to do with something we all need to remember, that not many of us were powerful or noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong, the low and despised. That's us. And we have to remember that. We can't forget that. We are not a good catch for God. Okay? We're no different than the drunk who stumbles into the rescue mission at 11 o'clock at night. That's us. And he chose us, and he saved us. And we need to be thankful. Thankful for it. That's exactly where we stand. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God. In fact, by God's grace, if you are his child today, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus, if you trust in him as the Messiah, we are the weak of the world that God has chosen to confound the wise. Amen.